Welcome to Going Further and Higher, Shakespeare Martineau's podcast in which we discuss topical or indeed long-running themes in higher and further education. My name is Smita Jamdar and I'm partner and head of education at Shakespeare Martineau. And I'm joined today by my colleague, David Brown, who is a partner who heads up our employment education team, uh, a team that works exclusively with universities and colleges on employment issues. Uh, in today's episode, we're discussing the tranche of amendments that are currently being debated by committee uh, in relation to the Higher Education Freedom of Speech Bill, which specifically relate to the definition of academic freedom. Um, and I had the fortune to listen yesterday to some of the committee's deliberations. And what was absolutely fascinating about them uh, was how quickly they became uh, discussions about the very purpose of a university, the very um, organization of a university and quite esoteric concepts around um, academic freedom. Uh, so David, I wanted to start by uh, thinking about where we currently are in terms of protecting academic freedom. Yeah. And, I'm, uh, and because I'm sort of very long in the tooth, um, I, I go back to the introduction of the Education Reform Act in 1988, when tenure was abolished mm -hmm. um, and some statutory protection was introduced for academic freedom. And what stri strikes me that was sometimes overlooked um, over the passage of time is that even then there was a recognition that academic freedom, uh, the freedom to test received wisdom and expouse unpopular and controversial opinions and so on, had to be balanced alongside the need for institutions to uh, use their resources efficiently and effectively um, and therefore make judgments about uh, what was being taught. Um, so in terms of currently, if an academic feels that their, their academic freedom has been infringed, what, what, what's the legal position? Uh, what, what are their rights and remedies? Okay, thanks, Samita. Um, well, I think as a starting point, as you say, this is not an this is not a new concept it's been around for a long time and uh, indeed a lot of organizations have already enshrined within their various corporate governance documents be those statutes ordinances articles etc have enshrined within there the, the concept of academic freedom um, and as you say it's there to ensure that staff uh, you know broadly speaking you know have the freedom within the law to to question and test receive wisdom etc um put forward new ideas uh, which may be controversial um without placing themselves in jeopardy of losing their jobs and privileges um so it's not a new concept and th that is something which i think institutions have increasingly sought to introduce into their various um policies and procedures um certain organizations have uh, committees that they've established specifically to grapple with the issue of academic freedom and fundamentally because you've got those things enshrined within all of those documents if an organization acts in breach of that by dismissing somebody because they have exercised exercise their academic freedom then clearly it's going to point towards most likely an unfair dismissal because you, ha you have a process which is set out by an organization which the organization then disregards so there's the general principle i think that um if an organization was to go against someone exercising their academic freedom and dismissing them because of it or subjecting them to a detriment then they would have a case in law uh, to, to pursue for example an unfair dismissal claim in the employment tribunal so david i thought what was quite interesting was that um, in the uh, evidence that's been presented to the Public Bill Committee and certainly in the discussions that were taking place yesterday, mm. there was almost a, um, 
acceptance that there is a widespread um, risk to academic freedom in English universities. Yeah. And I'd be interested to know, based on your experience of advising many universities in relation to HR issues, is it something that comes up very frequently? Are, are there a lot of complaints about infringement of academic freedom? Uh, I think the honest answer is is no. Um, it, it probably comes up uh, less often um, than you may expect. I, I, I'm not really... Um, I haven't experienced many standalone complaints that an academic's academic freedom is being infringed. Where sometimes you do see it is where an academic may be subject to some other form of procedure or process. And uh, for example, it could be performance management or, or misconduct. And then um, when they're subjected to that process, an academic may say, well, actually in invoking this procedure, you, you, are, you are infringing my academic freedom. Um, and that's precisely why I think we are experiencing a, an increasing trend um, that institutions are having in place committees that are then going to grapple with that particular issue. Um, is the process being followed because of someone's um, exercising their academic freedom uh, or, or, or for something completely unconnected? And actually, um, you know, it, and therefore the, the, the concept of academic freedom is being preserved. I think that 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 sort of raises um, something that I think, again, was coming through quite strongly in the committee, which was who should decide if there has been an infringement of academic freedom? Um, mm -hmm. And I guess my starting point is that the courts have always shown themselves quite reluctant to get involved in matters of academic judgment, i.e., yeah. you, you know, um, the, the, the professional judgments of what should be taught and how it should be taught, I think, would be regarded as academic judgment. Um, I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of the regulators being asked to say whether or not something is a um, infringement of academic freedom or a proper exercise of academic freedom. And so you're, do, you, do you want to say a little bit more about these committees? Because that does yeah. seem to be a good answer to this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think it's it's probably worth um, commenting, it, it, you know, with with relation to other procedures which are operated by organisations. So very rarely is it the case that you would, for example, have someone external presiding over any disciplinary proceedings, any appeal proceedings, etc. So it's not necessarily something that I would advocate has to be outsourced or has someone outside of an organisation uh, looking at it. But I do think it needs to be um, addressed and considered by academics um, it, it first and foremost. So the committees that uh, I'm familiar with and with some of my um, university clients um, are, 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 you know, are constituted with um, academics uh, first and foremost. And what they can sometimes do um, as part of that process is, um, is they may refer, for example, to an external expert on the issue um, if, they, uh, if, they, if they need to. But my, my general view and my advice, I think, in terms of just having processes which work is for them not to be too prescriptive in that regard. Because remember that, um, going back to what I was saying earlier, it may well be the case that there is an interrelation between that particular process and a separate process which is ongoing. Um, and you don't want to elongate that process unnecessarily as well. So whilst I think it is helpful um, for these committees to be established to deal with this point, you are wanting to still do it within a framework which is manageable. Okay. Excellent. The, um, the, 
some of the amendments we looked at uh, that went before the committee yeah. really gave uh, the definition of ex uh, academic freedom breadth mm. in terms of the freedom to teach or research uh, whatever the academic desired. And there was quite a lot of discussion um, yesterday about ensuring that uh, there shouldn't be any wrongful institutional interference in that. Yeah. What it struck me, though, was that there are quite a lot of government agendas which require action to be taken if the institution is to, to, to thrive in the context of these agendas in relation to matters which are taught and matters which are reserved. So the obvious yeah. ones would be the teaching excellence framework, yeah. um, the research excellence framework. But if you extend it to um, the debate around things like low value courses, whatever that means, one of the criticisms is those courses aren't obviously serving the needs of students. Um, and it, finally, obviously, the whole consumer protection agenda, which requires institutions to publish quite a long time in advance exactly what it is that they're going to teach and exactly how it's going to be taught. So do you foresee problems for institutions uh, if they are unable to respond as quickly and as thoroughly as they need to those government agendas because the definition of academic freedom has essentially given the autonomy to the individual academic for um, making decisions on what to teach and what to research? Well, I, th I think this is actually, this probably the significance of this is introduced probably can't, can't be, um, can't be overstated it is it is quite it's quite a significant proposal um so you've already alluded to um some of the terminology proposed without institutional interference elsewhere uh, you know that there there's reference to um, academics being able to design and deliver their own teaching notwithstanding direction as to the topic or occasion of their teaching and um I'm going to do the typical thing of answering the question I wished you'd asked, um, but I will also answer your question as well, um, which is I do, I, do, I do think it is potentially significant that, but I want to go to some more fundamentals, I think, which is, you know, going back to the, the employment relationship, um, fundamentally is, is, you know, well established the principles of what an employment relationship looks like. And one of the things that's important in terms of an employment relationship is control, um, for there to be a degree of control um, from the employer over the employee. And it strikes me that um, enabling, um, uh, enabling an individual to have complete autonomy in terms of designing and delivering their own teaching, etc., cetera, um, without any interference or, or control by the employer, seems to me to be at odds with the um with the concept of 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 an employment um relationship and then there are other issues i think associated with that so going back to you know the, broadly the definition of academic freedom as it is which is you know fundamentally that um academics should be able to exercise their academic freedom without putting themselves in jeopardy of losing their jobs and privileges so that then presents the, the, the conundrum um, from an, as an employment lawyer of what, do you, what happens if you have an academic that has autonomy in terms of designing and delivering their own teaching, but they, they do so in a way which means that actually it's not a popular area, it's undersubscribed and therefore it's not really viable. Um, well, fundamentally, if you were to dismiss that individual by reason of redundancy, for example, you're in breach of the concept of academic freedom um, 
as potentially proposed because because it's about without placing academics um, in jeopardy of losing their jobs and privileges so the 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 more the broader the definition the more it seems to be out of kilter with the fundamentals of 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 employment law that that's a really interesting point i mean i think we we should we should record the fact that government seemed to recognise these difficulties and has agreed to go away and think about these amendments yeah. rather than adopting any of them. So I think it's well understood that the challenges that lie ahead. Um, just to conclude today's podcast, um, one of the other aspects of academic freedom that was discussed in the in the amendments was about the freedom to criticise um, the organisation, to criticise the institution, yeah. its governance, its decisions, its affiliation, its management. And you and I have slightly different perspectives on this. So from an employment law point of view, what challenges do you think that might um, pose? For yeah, and, and I, I don't, I don't think we depart too much uh, <laughs> from from each other on this. But I, but I, I think there is an important point to make, which is I, I don't, I don't think um, my view is that academics should should be prevented um, from expressing opinion about 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 their provider, etc., and their institution. Um, uh, and and that they that, that it's okay to subject them to detriment as a consequence but it's a question of i suppose um i want to say style over substance that probably trivializes it but 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 fundamentally it is that which is that the protection should be there for um an enabling academics to to um to 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 express their opinion but there's a question i think about the forum in which they're able to do that um, because again, going back to the the concept of imp- of the employment relationship, you you have the implied duty of trust and confidence between an employer and an employee. So if an employee is 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 um, is criticising um, in a particularly disruptive way, in a manner that is designed to disrupt and to destroy that relationship. That again seems to me to be out of kilter with the concept of an ongoing viable employment relationship, because that is an implied um, that is an implied term um, that, that both parties are bound by. So um, fundamentally, I think it's it's about it's going to it's going to require some careful drafting. I think in terms of ensuring that it's not preventing academics from expressing their opinion, but there is a question about how how they go about doing that. And I think that if there are forums in which they're able to do that, then those are the forums that should be used. That's, um, I, th- I think one of the, the, the legal issues that's going to have to be resolved over the next few years is the, re- the relative relationship between the, the um, employment rights of trust and confidence and the new statutory duties and as lawyers we uh, will we'll have um, a, a lot to say about that I'm sure. And I think the only other thing I wanted to say was that um, in, in thinking about this discussion today um, the, these these things that we've raised aren't you know these aren't hypothetical gripes or issues that we're addressing these are things that I've seen um, be, being raised in practice so I think it will be really important to see the direction of the bill because depending on what amendments um, and and um, what what is agreed on, um, then you know it may well raise some significant issues. I think going forward. That's absolutely fascinating, David. Thank you very much, and thanks very much uh, for listening to our podcast today. We hope you'll join us next time, and don't forget to hit the subscribe button. If you like what you've heard, please do leave us a review. Goodbye.